Hi there, I'm Laura Best, founder of Passion Collective and host of the Passion Chats podcast. On this episode, I chat with Cassie Hilgert, president and CEO of ArtsQuest, one of the largest arts and culture nonprofits in Pennsylvania. ArtsQuest provides access to exceptional artistic, cultural, and educational experiences, using arts and culture to boost economic development for urban communities to the tune of more than 136 million bucks annually. You'll hear Cassie share her story of being discouraged from her passion as a teen, how she built and left her corporate career, her belief in vulnerability and authenticity as a leader, and how her passion has grown and shaped over the years. I know you'll be inspired by her story. Enjoy. All right, Cassie. Well, thank you so much for coming on to Passion Chats today. We are delighted to have you. Uh, Let's start out with a, a a question about where you came from and how you got here today. Uh, you were born in New York, uh, New York, and you said that you loved arts as a teen. You loved arts, but that you weren't necessarily encouraged to pursue the arts as a career. So how did that fork in the road shape and impact you as you look back and as you sit here today talking to me? Yeah, you know, I loved both the arts and the sports when I was in high school. And and as a woman, especially in sports at that time, there was really nothing to do past high school. So that wasn't going to be a path. And the arts, uh, you know, was not encouraged in my family. So I had to go sort of that traditional business route. But what I did do is I kept that passion for it and picked marketing. To me, that was taking a brand and expressing it in an artistic way and connecting with people. So I really followed that feeling that there's a little bit more than numbers in our world that should control us. And there was something bigger than that. I think what was a real fork in the road for me was I worked for a nonprofit health network about midway through my career. And that was the first time I experienced a mission versus a corporate job or a private sector job. That to me was where um, the passion that I had for the arts felt very similar to working for something that was mission-based and bigger than me. So that shaped me throughout my career to keep finding those moments where when I went home at night, I felt like I had done something that was bigger than myself. And that was very important to me. And I thought the arts were the same thing. When you're on on stage with an ensemble, you are a team. Same thing as if you're on a field. And having that kind of camaraderie to me was where I felt most fulfilled. So I, I tried to follow that throughout my career if it couldn't be strictly in the arts early on. Mm. Now, I, I just thinking about this idea of, of not being encouraged with the arts, it, it reminds me of the Gwyneth Paltrow movie, Sliding Doors, which we talk about a lot with Passion Collective. You know, the what ifs, the other paths in life that we choose. When you look back, and I know I know you've said to me before that you weren't necessarily encouraged. I don't think you were discouraged from the arts, right? But it wasn't this sort of massive encouragement to go and follow that path. Do you ever wonder, you know, as a teen, if you had pursued the arts, how things would have worked out? Do you think it would have worked out the same? I'm not a person who dwells a lot in that. Um, I can't change it. It does nothing for me, except that it provides motivation. So uh, I think it was really critical to get back to a point where I could feel that that excitement. And to me, when I'm working for a mission, it's the same excitement as as when I get on stage. I, I was discouraged from going into the arts 
And I think what I'm passionate about today is I've learned over my career the impact the arts industry has on our economy. So I've taken what was supposed to be go into a logical career path, earn your paycheck, enjoy yourself outside of work. And I want to throw that away and say the arts is as important. I think the arts industry is a bigger industry than construction in the United States. We spend so much time saying the arts are just a nice quality of life. And I'm taking what I was taught growing up, going into a logical career path that, you know, had an impact on the economy and saying, but the arts do have an impact on the economy. And you also get that fulfillment, at least for me. So I think it became a competitive need to say the, no, no, the arts are something we've got to grab onto with both hands and make sure that we're elevating it because it has an impact on our economy and on our lives. Yeah, that's interesting because I think often, at least for for women of our generation, we were discouraged from certain paths because of certainly from a parental standpoint, there was this need for safety, right, and security. Um, and I think many of us of our generation went towards these more logical paths where theoretically there was stability, but that's obviously changed in in recent years. And to your point, the arts potentially has always been there. So with this fork in the road, you eventually built an impressive career with a big Fortune 250 chemical engineering company. I mean, talk about a fork. <laughs> That's like completely the opposite direction. Um, and then you changed to the world of art. So that's, you know, a big pivot. What prompted you to make that change? You've talked about this need for passion and mission. But when you were at that chemical engineering company, was there an experience there or set of experiences that prompted you? Or was it more of a natural evolution? No, I think there were some there were some really important milestones there that happened. One I learned so much at that company. It was global when I got recruited there. You know, it looked like it was the brass ring from what I was grown up to believe. And and here's your professional path and go get it. And so I worked there. And while I learned a lot, I just didn't feel any fulfillment. Uh, and I was trying to ignore it. I was saying to myself, well, I guess this is what adults do, right? They go to work, they get their paycheck, you've got a, a stable career, and this is sort of everything. But I did have a moment, I remember it was in the winter and at the global headquarters, I was coming from my car, we had had an ice storm overnight and I was carrying things in from my car, a little bit of a walk to the office and I slipped and fell. And it was one of those long falls, you know, you can have a quick fall or I take five minute falls. And when I finally landed on the ground, that moment before, when you fall, before you wonder, did something hurt? You haven't felt the pain yet? I had this moment literally where I remember thinking to myself, I hope I'm hurt so I can get out of work for a while. I need to get away from this. And that to me was a moment I could no longer ignore. Whatever I had been pushing down bubbled up and exploded in that moment. And that's when I thought, I've I've got to get out of here. And at the same time, I was being uh, recruited by the founder of this arts organization who wanted me to get involved with this crazy idea of revitalizing a, a Bethlehem Steel site into an arts and cultural district. And that was the first moment I thought, you know what? I think I want to try this. And I didn't know what to do with it, but I knew that I couldn't ignore it anymore the way I had been trying to push it down. Mm, that's certainly an aha moment. And and did you uh did you make a decision at that point in time where you were lying on the ice, or did it take you some time to, you know, truly make that change? 
I think lying on the ice, I realized that I could not ignore anymore what was happening inside of me. So it wasn't an immediate thing where I said that day I'm leaving. But what I knew was that, all right, this is something I can't ignore anymore. And then oh, it was over the course of the next several weeks and months um, that I made the decision to leave. Mm. And what trade-offs did you have to face up to or make as you considered that decision? Well, when you go from a global 250 company to a, uh, what was the time, 30-person nonprofit, um, my job at that other company was to manage government relations and philanthropy. Uh, had significant exposure in the community, and I was going to leave all that behind, including a very solid career growth path, to go to this startup nonprofit that was going to do something that hadn't been done before. And certainly that was very hard from a confidence level. It was to do a job I'd never done before, but I knew I wanted to do. And what if I failed? It would look like I jumped off the train and then walked off the cliff. So there was a lot of trepidation making that move. What did you tell yourself as you made that move, as it related to your confidence? How did you G yourself up for it? I said to myself, what's the worst that can happen? Part of my personality whenever I'm faced with a challenge is to say, what is the worst thing that can happen? And if I can manage that, then you can manage through the situation. For some reason, I need to know the worst possible outcome. And I said to myself, the worst possible outcome is you fail at that too. And then what? You're still going to get up the next day. The world is going to rotate. The sun is going to come up and you're going to find a place to land. But if this works and if you succeed, you are going to fly to heights you've never imagined before. And you can make an impact for generations to come. And to me, that that promise, that possibility was bigger than my fear. Wow, that, that's definitely a leap of faith. And it sounded like you made it for sure. So you were being recruited for the arts position. Um, and, you know, you're saying that it definitely needed that uh, injection of confidence on your side, even though you had this significant role and career in corporate. Uh, what was it about the challenge that inspired you to make that leap of faith? The challenge was the founder of the nonprofit I work for now was a tax attorney. And he was running an arts nonprofit and he wanted to tackle what was then the largest brownfield under redevelopment in the United States. And he wanted to show that the arts could actually start that redevelopment and encourage further development in the private sector. And to me, that just sounded crazy. And I remember saying to him, you want me for a job I've never done before? I am not, I haven't been in the arts in forever what makes you think I can do this? And I remember him saying, I'm a tax attorney running an arts organization. What's not possible here? What we need is someone coming in from the outside with a different view. What I need you to have is passion, which I knew that was the one thing I had in abundance. And also between the arts and theater when I was younger and sports, I'm hyper competitive. And this was an insurmountable challenge that no one had ever done. And that is when I think I am most fired up. Tell me that something can't be done. I'm all in. Both feet. Let's go. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, you're in philanthropy when you're in corporate, right? But this was a whole different level of philanthropy and was part of your job to raise a ton of money. I mean, how did you go about that if if you haven't really done this before? I mean, 
talk us through that process and how you sort of changed your mindset or your skills to really be able to have confidence in asking for those big dollars. Yes, there was a lot, a lot of fundraising. There's definitely a lot of fundraising involved. Uh, two things happened there. The day I resigned from the big corporate gig, uh, immediately that afternoon, I had regrets and concern. And so I was uh, standing with a colleague lamenting the decision I had just made and saying, I have been giving away the company's money for the last five years. Now I have to go raise all that money. I don't think I can do this and going on and on and on. And my colleague that I was talking with was very quiet, just nodding her head and then reached into her pocket and gave me a dollar and said, there, you just raised the dollar. Now, what is your excuse? And that was another aha moment to me of, okay, maybe I can just do this. But what I also realized in thinking about it was because I was involved in corporate philanthropy, I had seen all the proposals from other nonprofits. I knew how corporations made decisions. I also know that corporations have money they have to spend. So knowing and having seen good proposals versus bad proposals, great nonprofits versus struggling ones, that gave me a real insight to get to the other side of the table. And for me, uh, this is just a matter of getting past no, because as soon as someone tells you no, you're much closer to your next yes. It's just volume. Oh, I love that. I had, I heard someone say the other day that we should be collecting no's as we build whatever it is we're building. And I really love that idea of collecting no's because it's more of a positive, right? Rather, than I say a lot to my team, let's fail early and get it out of the way. It's inevitable. Um, and you really don't learn a whole lot when you succeed. You learn a lot more when you fail. So bring it on. Let's get it over. And success will be right around the corner. Oh, I love that. And how wonderful that your colleague, uh, it to, to that person, that the colleague sort of gave you the small piece of reassurance to them. But to you, that changed everything, right? So that I, I still have that dollar framed and hanging in my office. And it was everything of, of just someone saying, get out of your own head. Uh, because actually, the person that tells you no the most is yourself. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Well, it sounds like, you know, along the way, you've experienced many leadership lessons uh, in corporate and also as you've carved your own path um, in this role. What are some of the leadership lessons uh, that you'd like to share with the Passion Chat listeners? What are most important to you? Well, we were just talking about it. I think a big one is ignoring no. I think we get stuck in our own thoughts and we also get stuck more in rejection and failure than we do success instead of realizing that those failures are your springboard to what is going to be something right around the corner that is going to launch you into a new stratosphere. Um, you know, I think a big thing for me as a leader uh, is, you know, power or leadership is an illusion. People are following you and they can change in a minute. So you've got to give them their own power and autonomy to follow your vision. They need to know where they're going to fit into what you're trying to accomplish. So for me, when the team succeeds, that has nothing to do with me. And I give that away to the team. If we fail and if things don't go well, that's on my desk. And I'm happy to take that. When you do that, your, your team members see that you have their back. And we all want to know that we have some room to fail if we're trying and we're giving it our best effort. And if we have someone who has our back, we're going to try again even harder. And if our, our leader takes the blame, we're going to want to help pick them back up. And I think one of the biggest things for me is that what gets you into leadership 
is not what will make you a good leader. Very often we have to work a lot and do a lot of things and take on additional roles in order to get into that leadership. But once you're there, you need to delegate, you need to build a high performing team, and then you need to give them the tools and let them go, which means you're giving up control. That is not easy to do because you're controlling your destiny when you're building everything up, right? But once you get there, you can't keep doing it yourself. So you need people around you that are smarter than you at what they know. And that is very intimidating. But you must realize that what got you into that leadership role may not be the skill you will need to create a high-performing team. Yeah, that lack of control is is huge, right? Especially if you're a passion-driven leader. How have you managed to really translate the personal passion you have for the arts to be able to motivate your team in the way that you have? I mean, surely that's quite a leap as well, going from that personal passion to the organizational passion and making that connection for your team. I think two things. One, I remember throughout my career, the leaders and the bosses who pigeonholed me and who had to have just their own singular vision and how unfulfilling that was. Um, I learned a lot from that. And I wanted to be part of a team where I knew, okay, I love this vision, but what can I do? And where's my autonomy to help bring that to reality? Um, That is a big deal. I, I think another thing is, is when you recruit those people that buy into your passion, they're often going to create a larger vision than you even imagined. It is a lot to give that up, but it's going to take you to places you could not think of as your own. So I think it's a combination of both experiencing what it's like when you can't be part of that and really bring it to reality. And what we do here when we when we bring new team members on is we hire for core values We don't hire necessarily for skills. If you have the same core values, be creative, be curious, find joy, be transparent. If you have those qualities, you're going to succeed here. And I'm going to trust that you can fulfill the vision we're all buying into. So at that, as much as you give that up, what we try to build behind the scenes is the trust. We have trust with each other. We're going to go to some great places. Mm. The other word that comes to mind is vulnerability. Uh, As a leader, obviously, if you're giving away that control and if you're uh, sharing that trust, how what role does vulnerability play in that for you? I mean, surely that's a a balancing act as well, right? Especially in the nonprofit space. I think leadership today, especially, is about vulnerability and authenticity. It's those two things together. I am more than willing to say the number of times I've made a bad decision. I have found when I've said that, there's almost a relaxing of the shoulders among team members. Well, if she makes a mistake and she's still here and will say it, I can too. So vulnerability, especially coming out of COVID, when I think we're all dealing still with a lot of mental health issues uh, that may have just had a, a lid on them before COVID, I think it's even more important today for leaders to be able to say, here's where I'm struggling. Here's where I made a bad decision. Here's where I I don't know what to do. What I found as a result of that is the collective creativity and problem solving of more than one person attacking the problem. Vulnerability in a self-serving way makes your job as a leader easier. 
because people, your team, if it's a quality team, will jump in to say, I can help with this. I can pick up that. Here's how we're going to fix this. I love that. Vulnerability makes things easier. Often we think it's the opposite, right? (laughs) Um, So vulnerability, authenticity, being a passion-driven leader, leading a nonprofit uh, organization with huge ambitious goals that could change people's lives. I mean, if you hit and what, well, I should say when you reach your goals on an ongoing basis, you're changing people's lives. That's got to take a lot of energy from you as the leader of the organization. So how do you sustain your personal energy as a passion-driven leader in this organization? How easy is that? Well, here's a vulnerability moment. I don't think I'm very good at that. Uh, it is something that I'm actively working on. And I do look to my colleagues who I think do it well. And I ask them, hey, I don't know how to do this really well. What, what do you do? And I've learned a lot from them. And one of the biggest things I'm working on right now is being present wherever I am at the moment. So if I am at work where I want to be doing what I want to do, I am present. And then when I am not, I try to be present in that moment. So it is turning off when I leave here, as, and that is very hard for me to do because I just see something on the news, I read an article, and it makes me think of this. And, and I know that we sort of celebrate these work 24 hours a day and, and never turn off. Um, I have found when I do that, I am actually less productive when I'm actually here. So turning off when I'm not here, and it's little things that I want to show to my colleagues too, like when you're out of the office, literally say, I cannot be reached. And then don't actually reach out when you're not here. Yeah, that's huge. Leading by example. What sort of activities do you do then to 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 create that distance, especially if you're in the arts? The arts are everywhere, right? So I can imagine how, you know, you'd see an arts piece and be inspired or triggered or you'd have a great yeah. idea or you'd get passionate about it. How do you manage that when you're out in the world trying to take care of yourself? I think I thought for a long time that because I'm an adult, I need to do adult things in 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 my off time, uh, and that's I don't know, getting another degree or or doing something that 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 looks very sophisticated. And I finally said to myself, what did I used to love to do when I was a kid? And I used to love to make mixtapes. Uh, I would just sit in my room for hours and make mixtapes and listen to the radio and wait for that one song to come on. Or you know, I was like a DJ for one. Uh, and so I go back and I make playlists. I make them for moods. I make them for days of the week. I, you know, I, I scour new music to find that one new song that you got to play 20 times in the next two days because it just it, it hits your soul. So I still make mixtapes using, you know, more digital technology. Uh, I play a lot of golf uh, and, and and I can say during COVID, um, you know, I love animals. And so we were all isolated, couldn't be around a lot of people. And I fostered kittens right here in my office. I had a brother-in-law who had a feral couple in his backyard. And every time they had a litter, I said, give me all of them. I'm just going to take them. So I went back to what I loved as a kid and I'm just doing that. Yeah. And what's interesting about most of those activities, maybe with the exception of golf, is that the outcomes aren't necessarily important, right? It's being in that moment. Or maybe golf is too. You got to be in the moment with golf. (laughs) Exactly. You know, all of it just fulfills me right at that moment. And then when I'm not doing that, I'm ready to tackle everything else with the same kind of uh, energy. I love that. I love that. Would you uh, be able to share one of your mixtapes with the Passion Chat listeners? Oh, I'd be happy to. I'd love that. Yeah, we'd do that. Oh, that would be so fun. 
So um, as we wrap up here, Cassie, tell us about what your goals are right now for your organization, um, what you're really driving towards, what you're really hoping to accomplish. Yeah, we are um, uh, we are in the middle of a capital campaign. We just started up again after COVID. It's an ambitious $66 million capital campaign. Uh, and the two big pillars that we're working on right now is to build a new cultural center in South Bethlehem. It is in a uh, low-income census tract. Um, and we are looking at building a new $20 million, $22 million uh, cultural center that will be based mostly in visual arts, bringing international and national artists to South Bethlehem for month-long residencies. It'll have a year-round comedy club. Uh, it'll have artist studios that are offered at below market value. Uh, and then we are also rehabbing a 150-year-old Bethlehem steel building. It is gorgeous, all brick and stone. It's got a crane run inside, and that will house uh, artistic traveling uh, art ex exhibitions and educational exhibitions. It will be um, part of our uh, largest music festival in the country, Music Fest. It will be the greatest beer hall for our Oktoberfest and offer an expansion for our Chris Kindle Mart, which runs for about five weekends between Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's a $14 million project. We're about halfway there for both buildings, getting those both done will further expand the impact of what we've been able to do here at SteelStacks and our year-round about $140 million uh, annual economic impact to the region. Wow, all of that sounds fun. Where can we sign up? Is it a, um, an individual or corporate focus that you have in terms of raising? It is. Everybody, if you're walking down the street, we're going to shake the money out of your pockets. Uh, but no, it is, it is corporate, individual, and the public sector. We have been very fortunate. The public sector, as in elected officials and government levels, have jumped into our projects early. That encourages the private sector to then leverage those dollars and help us get over the goal line. And there's certainly space for individuals. You can check out artsquest.org to learn more about that or steelstacks.org to learn more about our year-round programming. I love that. And tell me quickly what impact you hope to make with all of this work. Like if you're 10 years ahead of time, right, and you're looking back on all this work, what do you really hope to accomplish on an individual level? Well, COVID certainly taught us what happens and what how we can be impacted if we can't be together. And one of the greatest ways to bring people together is the arts. On top of that, we are in a, wherever you are in the world, a very unstable political time. We are more separated than we are brought together. I think between COVID and our political atmosphere, we've learned how important the arts are. So to me, 10 years down the road, um, I would like to see the arts as an industry seen as the vital uh, asset that it is to creating communities, uh, enhancing lives, addressing mental health issues, and expressing our creativity. I want the arts to be seen as important as the engineering field, as semiconductors, as construction. All of those are important to an economy, but the arts, if I had my way in 10 years, would be at the top of that pyramid. Oh, I love that. And it makes me think back to when you were a teenager and you identified this passion for the arts. How would you say your passion has changed from then till now? I mean, I know you're super close to still being a teenager, Cassie, obviously. Um, that much time has not passed. But in all <laughs> seriousness, it seems like your passion has simply grown. It hasn't changed. Is is Would that be a fair assessment? I think it's grown because what I may be trying to do, and while I said I don't necessarily look back and think about what if, what I do think is I'm trying to make up for lost time. For the years that I got out of that and didn't follow that passion, 
uh, I want to double down and make sure that I take advantage of every moment I am fortunate to be in this position. Oh, I love that. That's definitely food for thought. Well, thank you so much, Cassie, for joining us today. Uh, hopefully the Passion Chats listeners got a lot of inspiration from this. You've got so much amazing energy. Thank you for all the work you do. And we'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much, Laura. I can't wait to hear from your future guests and learn as well. Awesome. Take care.